three distinguished speakers, two of whom we know very well, uh, become, uh, come here for what has become an annual event, yeah. uh, the report of the most recent uh, Canada-UK uh, colloquium. Um, so Philip Peacock, who's the chair of the Canada-UK Council, Nicholas McLean, who's a leading member uh, of the Canada-UK Council, uh, and then someone who uh, joined the colloquium just this uh, last year, uh, Lucian uh, Jordson, who's uh, in, at UCL, uh, in the UCL Geography uh, Department, and who's a particular uh, expert in the field that was being looked at, which was the, uh, although the field was more specific than this, but within the general area uh, of global warming and climate change and so on. So uh, you're very welcome, and I'll hand over to Philip. I won't spend too much time myself, because I'm hoping that Lucian is the real expert and will be talking in more detail than I can possibly do. But I wanted to just mention to, and to reiterate to those who perhaps don't know that Canada-UK Council is a bilateral group between Canada and the UK and we have an annual uh, colloquium, as it's called, or a seminar conference on a different subject each year with a view to coming up with recommendations to... Um, make to government and other officials uh, in each country with a view to um, influencing their decision-making processes. And um, this year, as we know, the colloquium, which was in uh, Edmonton in uh, November last 2016, was on the transition to a low-carbon economy. And um, there is a report that will be coming out fairly shortly and I am very happy to email that report to you if you can leave your name and email address on this piece of paper, which I'm pushing over to you, Tony, if you could pass that round so that once I have details, I can send the report round. It's um, at a very late stage of finalisation, so it shouldn't be too long before it's available in the electronic version. There are one or two uh, things to iron out in it just at the moment. Um, the conference itself was not a technical conference. It wasn't a meeting of climate change um, exclusively um, in the sense that whilst there were climate change experts, there were other policy people there from government and from um, other organisations who have an interest in this subject. And so uh, it was more to do with policy than, than the technical area. Uh, nor was it a discussion about whether there is climate change um, the starting point that there is climate change and the question was what do we do about it um, this therefore is just a brief overview and I think one of the key lessons that we took from the proceedings was that there needs to be considerable adaptation and transition in both countries and one of the quotes which I'd like to read to you from the um, report is that unless governments businesses and civil society summon the necessary will to act, we and our children face a dystopian future of environmental collapse, famine, inundations of islands and coastlines, climate, refugees and war. So um, if one doesn't do anything about climate change, then according to one speaker, that was the view, the dystopian uh, uh, future that uh, mankind will suffer from. Um, 
the other message that I took was that this uh, whole agenda affects everyone, every single citizen um, in both countries and indeed globally. And the position in Alberta is interesting. Uh, we on the British side were intrigued that we were going to be meeting in Edmonton, Alberta, because that is the home of the oil sands and one wouldn't expect them to be in the forefront of climate change adaptation and transition. But um, we realised that there was a very good reason why the Canadian partners uh, wanted to hold the colloquium in Edmonton. And some of the things which were said summed up the Canadian position quite well, and also the Alberta one. And one of the things that was reported was that Canada's federation is decentralised and diverse with significant provincial differences that complicate federal policy making, and I guess there's nothing new in that from the point of view of Canadian government. Provinces have ownership of and jurisdiction over natural resources, and there are differences in carbon intensity and climate policy among them. Canada's provinces are diverse in that some have implemented cap and trade or carbon taxes, or in some cases have done nothing. And maybe we can talk about carbon taxes and cap and trade if anyone wants to do so a little later. Cross Canada polling consistently shows that provinces that have most to lose also exhibit the lowest acceptance of the science and least support for action and vice versa. And I think that's particularly the case or has been uh, with Alberta. But we were um, entertained royally to a lunch hosted by Rachel Notley, the Premier of um, uh, Alberta, who has introduced a new carbon policy for the province. And briefly, um, the essential elements are they want to introduce a carbon tax which will rise to $30 a tonne uh, in 2018. Um, the phase-out by 2030 of coal-fired power, which now provides most electricity in the province. A tax of 30% renewable energy for electricity generation by 2030. And a 100 megaton annual limit on greenhouse gas emissions from oil sands production by 2030, from a current level of around 80 megatons, thus forcing emissions reduction as a prerequisite for significant growth. So that's the position in Alberta, and we had a very interesting uh, briefing day uh, before the actual colloquium where there were various speakers uh, who gave us a very um, detailed insight into the um, changing atmosphere in Alberta so far as climate change is concerned. The other big event that has occurred um, very recently, of course, is the Paris Climate Change Conference, COP21, and the objective there is to limit average global warming to 2 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial global temperatures and seeks an aspirational target of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade. The focus is now on nationally determined contributions to the global effort. Um, my concern about my own personal concern about the Paris Agreement is that it doesn't seem to me to be legally binding. There are no sanctions if um, people don't um, sign up to or agree to their nationally determined contributions. But 
um, there may be, you never know, there may be a race to the top. And I was confident in that until Mr. Trump was elected. So I do wonder whether the effect of his election will, will mean that um, there are some dissenters from that view. Anyway, time will tell. Um, another lesson I took away from the colloquium was the distinction between targets and goals. Targets are, if you like, the route to your goal. The goal is not um, 2% um, above pre-industrial global temperatures. That is the target. The goal is a livable climate. And the important thing to remember about that distinction is that targets can change over time according to circumstances. And so it may be that in future COP meetings, the targets will change according to how progress has developed or not developed. But the ultimate goal is to achieve a livable um, climate. So I think one of the features that came out was that this is not just um, a huge cost to society economically, but also an opportunity, because if um, these steps are taken to mitigate climate change, then things like air quality, health, productivity and lifestyle will be drastically improved. Um, it's also necessary to take a holistic approach to the task, um, to treat it as an integral part of a whole economy in a country, um, regulation and innovation clash as the first shuts down the second, which is a, a point which has a lot had telling effect. So success requires public acceptance, not just uh, talk. Um, there must be a, a just transition, for example, on carbon taxes. That's a regressive tax, and it may adversely affect the disadvantaged. So it's important to ensure that the tax which is collected is um, channeled in particular ways to um, ameliorate any disadvantage to the poor in the particular society. Um, uh, electric vehicles was discussed, and there was a warning that that tends to benefit the better off, and therefore um, to invest too much in electric vehicles can be counterproductive, or maybe. Um, I heard on the radio today that uh, a, um, a VW Golf is more polluting than a fully laden tra truck. So um, I think there's a lot to be done there. Um, other things which um, Lucien, who will speak later, was keen in talking about in Edmonton was house insulation and the responsibilities of landlords and tenants and uh, whether uh, each leaves it to the other with the result that nothing gets done um, in the rented housing sector, that is. And also the digitization of the electricity market is an important area. So all these things made it clear that active engagement on the domestic level was vitally important. So in conclusion to my overview, um, this area of um, transition must be treated by all countries as a core value and not a set of issues. Information technology is what we think we need, but environmental technology is what we actually need. And with that, 
Shall I pass the uh, microphone to yeah, Lucy? I guess so. My research looked at the green economy more broadly, of course, which is um, of which the low carbon economy is a major constituent. So, um, when Philip got in touch with me and asked me to come on and speak this, afternoon, this evening, um, I just wanted to um, share a few thoughts on the outcomes and um, on the findings of the reports um, from the from the colloquium. Um, and I think overall, the colloquium did a pretty fantastic job in identifying um, solutions and also challenges where maybe still we need to continue to search for solutions um, across this whole scope of this, this topic, um, which is very impressive considering the size of, of, of the topic um, in total. Um, uh, it would be impossible um, to summarise, I think, all of the interesting and fruitful discussions that took place during the colloquium. Um, but I'd like to highlight three important, um, not sure if the best word is findings or um, uh, not really, maybe conclusions. Recommendations. Um, observations. Observations. It's somewhere between those three things. I wasn't quite sure of exactly the best word for it, but it's somewhere between a finding and an observation. Um, and to try and illustrate those with some examples from the colloquium and, and beyond that. Um, that I think these can help shape how we direct our future efforts um, and future collaboration within and between Canada and the UK when it comes to the low carbon economy. So I think the first really interesting observation was that um, there was a consensus in, at the colloquium that this transition will happen. It's the same thing with, as, as Philip said, there wasn't discussion about you know, the extent of climate change and causes of climate change, but I think beyond that, the, through a majority of the, the people in the room, there was a sense that there will be a low-carbon transition. There is a, um, a momentum towards that based on the progress that we've made over the last, uh, last few decades. It will happen in some form, but this is the problem. It will be the rate of change rather than the viability or the feasibility or the possibility of a low-carbon transition that will be key, and this emerges as our most pressing challenge. Um, and I think those in attendance generally agreed that political shocks are likely to slow down rather than derail entirely the low-carbon economy. Um, I quite like this new story. that uh, Unfortunately, not even Donald Trump can stop the powers of um, the global economy and that um, coal mines are going to... Con coal mines and coal plants in the US and... and throughout the Western world are going to continue to close because they are just not economic to operate anymore. They're too expensive. Um, so the coal facilities of Kentucky, or in this case Indiana, the North Sea oil rigs, the Alberta tar sands, they can't continue to be used forever. For not just environmental, but also economic reasons, because the other sources of energy are, you know, in the long run cheaper. But we also can't start, stop using all of these things tomorrow. What matters now is how fast this transition happens and whether the current and future rates of this transition will be quick enough to deliver the kinds of emissions reductions necessary to meet the targets of the Paris Agreement and the trajectory that that requires over the rest of this century. Um, analysis by the Carbon Action Tracker suggests that in order to do this, global carbon emissions have to peak by 2020, have to reach zero at some point between 2050 and 2080, and then go negative by 2100. So the world would be emitting less emissions in 2100 than they would be either storing or capturing or being um, 
taken in by the environment. So, I mean, the scale of the challenge is, is pretty enormous. We're talking about the complete decarbonisation of the global economy in 50 years. So, whether that happens, you know, to get that to happen in 50 years, the rate of how quickly that happens is very important. We might get to a low-carbon economy in 2100, but that's far too late. Um, and while there are many examples around the world of how incredible changes, particularly in electricity supplies, here, for example, with a number of headlines from places including the UK, um, Denmark, which has had days where they've been 100% wind powers, um, provinces in Canada like Ontario, and parts of the US like here, um, where the Great Plains reached 52% wind power for one day, um, which is pretty remarkable considering the you know, cultural opposition to climate action in that part of, of the world. Um, However, um, something else that um, was illustrated by the, by the um, colloquium is that there are other bigger challenges on, horizon, on the horizon. Transport, and particularly personal automotive transport, as was discussed by delegates in a couple of sessions, um, represents a huge source of emissions uh, that requires a huge amount of progress in the relatively near future in order to deliver the kind of deep decarbonisation pathways that are required. Um, and transport, I think, is a very useful example of how we need to map the obstacles to getting to a transition to a low-carbon economy um, and actually design long-term strategies to overcome them. Um, I think and we can see here um, in, this, in this figure that um, over a third of all passenger, passenger kilometres travelled in the US are done by large cars, and nearly a quarter is by air, and the same with Canada similar percentages there, and nearly a quarter of all passenger miles are travelled by air, and nearly um, a third by large, um, large autom automobile, automobiles, which is vastly different to the rest of the world. But even you know, huge amounts of air travel in other regions of the world as well um, demonstrate how that, you know, there is a concern about the amount of emissions involved with the kind of ways people are transporting themselves and goods around, um, that we need to you know, come up with both long-term and short-term strategies in order to address them. Uh, the second finding or observation um, was that while we can agree on the importance of the low-carbon transition and the importance of making a rapid transition in order to meet those cl um, climate change goals, um, it's just as important that we think about what kind of transition is desirable, feasible, but also, most importantly, socially acceptable. In this context, the importance of a just, inclusive, or equal transition came up quite frequently during the colloquium. Um, often in relation to political pressures and election cycles um, or the importance of be bringing the people with us in this transition. But in this context, I wanted to highlight a couple of thoughts in particular. Firstly, although this issue will involve communicating, as that's what I think people mean to say, bringing people along with us, um, better communication alone will not create a just, equal transition to a completely different kind of economy in 30 years. Um, all lead to wider public support for climate action and a low-carbon economy in general. Um, these kind of policies that will be required need to be desi explicitly designed with what matters to people you know, at their core. My sense is, and unfortunately I don't have any empirical research foundations for this, um, is that what matters to the majority of people when we talk about the economy is not abstract things about growth or the strength of your national economy, um, but more specifically, it's a sense of meaningful occupation that gives them security, shared prosperity, and a sense of purpose. I don't necessarily believe that Albertans 
necessarily love coal because it's coal, or those in Appalachia do not necessarily love, uh, sorry, oil rather, uh, those in Appalachia don't necessarily love coal because it's a, of the certain properties that it has as a fuel, but rather it gives them, it creates ties that they have to a sense of identity, purpose, community, and above all financial security for the people in the area where they live, even if they don't necessarily work in that industry, um, that are very strong. Um, and so the transition, the part of the transition to a low carbon economy that is a transition away from fossil fuels um, kind of needs to be de-weaponized or depoliticized in a way. Um, and fortunately, again, this chart is about America, but for some reason it seems to be in the news a lot at the moment. Um, so um, this is looking at wind and solar jobs as a share of the economy, uh, as a share of all enemy jobs versus um, how that particular state voted in the election. And I think this shows that while there is some sort of element of politicisation to low-carbon energy as an issue, there's a huge middle ground in the middle where it's very messy, whereas you have some states that have very strong you know, solar and wind energy production, but yet the politics is completely different. Um, and so I think, as several people noted during the colloquium, um, an important thing is that these kind of transitions are planned in a way that's um, bipartisan or you know, not political, so that um, it can get away from this sense that you know, one, pe one group of people is trying to take jobs away from another and give jobs to another set of people, because actually the important thing is that people in all these places have jobs and that there is you know, a transition to a low-carbon economy that benefits everyone taking place in all these places. So the energy transition needs to be designed and communicated in a way that understands and recognises where these losses take place and actively tries to overcome them and tries to prevent, uh, tries to plan where people are going to lose out and put in place things to help those people in advance, not wait until it already happens, and then they feel disenfranchised and um, angry at something which, in a sense, is not necessarily personal, shouldn't be personal or political, it's about energy. Um, and it also needs to contribute, I think, to a sense, or at least not harm, a sense of identity and community, especially in those places, um, places where people lost out. Um, and here I also wanted to just mention um, the Green Arrow Solar Installation Company, founded by members of the um, Montana First Nation. Um, as the leaders of that company and of that community spoke to us on the briefing day um, organized by the government of Alberta, the day before the colloquium, um, it became really clear to me that this is a, a really fantastic example of how this kind of thing um, can take place um, in, different, in different scenarios. Because um, chief executive of Green Arrow, which is a, uh, a company that's been started by um, members of the Montana First Nation, um, explain how people who are being trained in, in order to be a solar installer are getting pride and a sense of identity from the job of being a solar installer. Um, and other First Nation communities are learning how to um, train people in, uh, in to do this job and to set up their own um, solar facilities as well. So I think this is a very, uh, very, very concrete and real example of how the this can create a sort of sense of identity and community and belonging, which I think is very important to helping making this more just and equal 
um, um, as societies change. Um, and the other thing I think is in terms of how these, these kind of jobs become normalised and desirable um, is this, there's this amazing figure that I saw the other day that shows that the fastest growing job in the UX over the next 10 years is predicted to be a solar turbine service technician growing at 108% in the, in the number of jobs. Um, and I think the, these kind of things need to be looked at in a way that can sort of bolster um, a sort of very bipartisan approach to um, so low carbon transition so it's not something about one policy or another. Um, another issue perhaps for another colloquium is the number of, of these jobs that are related to healthcare and physical therapy, hearing aids, etc. But that's another theme for another day. <laughs> um, and as the speaker from the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology pointed out, um, on the more industrial scale of the low carbon economy, a lack of skilled and trained workers is, is a risk to the success in the public acceptance of clean energy projects. But I think this needs to be part of a public discourse in a way that people can feel part of it. And I really like this uh, news article or report saying that the blue collar job of the future is a solar panel installer. So that this doesn't have to be something that's seen as being metropolitan or elite or any of these things. Lots of this thing is, lots of the low carbon transition is just people doing stuff on the ground, but it's about what those jobs are and where they are and who can do them. So it's about providing those opportunities. Um, and then the final and third observation is that both of these, these challenges and the whole low carbon transition, um, really, always exists within complex layers of context. Um, and in the course of the colloquium, we learned about um, a number of things about Alberta, um, such as the you know, resource and extractives industry there, um, the pressures of the re-election campaigns for um, the, the NDP, um, the national commitments of, that the Canadian government has made to the Paris Agreement, um, the pressures and tensions between provisional and national governments, some of these things Philip uh, brought up in his, his remarks, local economic hardship related to um, ongoing economic problems, and the challenges faced by First Nation communities. And this is just a small part of the complexity of addressing the transition to a low-carbon economy in Alberta. So the challenge is that these solutions must always fit their particular context, and this is why I think it was one of the most important reasons why it was so useful to be in Edmonton for the colloquium, because I believe it challenged everyone present to consider the divergent viewpoints and the sheer variety of challenges that exist in delivering a low-carbon transition. And I know this is certainly something for me, very true for me as someone coming from an academic background in the UK, who'd never had to consider the kind of challenges that you know, businesses and politicians operating in, in an environment like Alberta have to consider. So in order to do these, to find these new solutions, new, new approaches are certainly needed. And the conference identified a number that merit further exploration, including further progress on adopting clear carbon disclosure regimes um, for financial actors to better understand carbon, the climate change risks inherent in markets and financial transactions, um, better measurement and reporting of the opportunities of the low-carbon transition, not just the constraints, which I think is a really important part of this whole picture, is that um, if you're taking away or saying that people have to reduce or not do stuff, then the story is saying we could be training this many people to do this, or there will be this many opportunities, or this is the kind of community you could have in the future. 
Um, and finally, returning to transport, as uh, Philip mentioned, finding the best ways to use public funds to support the development of the electrical vehicle market, I think, is very important. And that will look different in different, in different places, whether it's about helping the rollout of um, charging stations or battery swapping, swap-outs, or subsidies for vehicles. All of these things have to be considered um, in different ways. Um, examples that were brought up during the colloquium of how we can learn, how UK and Canada can learn from the experience that each country has had. For example, perhaps an organisation like the UK's Independent Committee on Climate Change, which is set up by the Climate Change Act, um, would be beneficial to, ca uh, to Canada, um, as some, several participant no participants noted, in order to take away some of that um, uh, politicisation of the issue. But of course, this should never be exactly the same kind of structure as it is in Canada, it's a very different country. Um, and as um, there's been some interesting things written about how policies are made, um, and I think one important thing that I read that always sticks with me with these kind of issues is that um, our task is not to identify what works there and then assume it's going to work over here, but rather to identify what made that policy work in its context and how can we learn from that in order to do something else in a new context. Um, so when we're thinking about what policies we should design and how we should be thinking about these challenges, we should remember that these three statements are not the same. And I think sometimes we get drawn into um, the problem of seeing something that's successful and working and really wanting a solution and therefore we apply it somewhere else. Whereas we've got from it works somewhere to it will work here without thinking about how those two um, scenarios might be completely different. So one size and all policies are not going to work for the low carbon economy. However, sharing experiences and learning lessons between um, you know, countries that are peers, friends and cooperate, I think is vital. There's a lot to, to worry about, I think. Um, the low transition to low carbon economies will happen. What matters is that it should be rapid, just and situational, contextually appropriate transition. Um, there were lots of other really important, really interesting things that were discussed um, during the colloquium that I would love to have gone into, de into detail about here, but there just wouldn't be time. Um, several of them Philip mentioned already, so I won't say them again, but another one, the best way in which governments and civil societies should engage with citizens um, on issues like energy management strategies. Where is the best, what's the best way to get information to people about how they can save energy in their homes? Because if you attach, some, some companies attach something to your bill, but how many people actually read and open their energy bill? And, you know, especially when it comes to the increase in rental accommodation. Um, if you live in a rented place, you can't put more insulation in the loft. One, you don't have the money, and two, it's not your property. So if you wanted to do something, you probably can't make those kind of changes anyway. Um, so I think now, with as the report comes out and we consider its... Um, its conclusions, we need to think about what actions must follow and how Canada, Canada, sorry, how Canada and the UK uh, can, can, through future interaction and cooperation, um, in terms of knowledge, experience, but also goods and services, continue to further uh, the transition to a low carbon economy. Um, so the colloquium showed that if the UK and Canada can exchange ideas uh, through the commonalities and differences that we share, um, we hope that both countries can achieve quicker, more just, and context-specific uh, transitions. So, 
everyone should be aiming to think about how we can all contribute to the goals of, um, of this colloquium and uh, both where the path is clear about what needs to happen next but also more importantly where there are challenges that we still need to work out how we are going to, going to overcome. So I'd like to end it there. And Thank you very much. First, first of all, I want to look at the, the big picture. To some extent, looking at only the low-carbon economy was uh, not, not, not all we looked at. Uh, it, it's just a neat title, uh, because we, we were looking at uh, uh, greenhouse gases uh, of many kinds, car carbon emissions only part of that. And people are beginning to realize, for instance, that uh, there the also needs to be a focus on uh, the poisonous nitrogen emissions as well. So, um, so I broaden out the title. Also, uh, I think to give a flavor of things, it's worth mentioning some of the people who took part. Um, we were very lucky that uh, a former Premier of Quebec, the Deputy Premier of Canada, Jean Charest, was the chairman, uh, really one of the outstanding uh, people to, to move Canada forward in this field a number of years ago. So he was uh, early in the field and still plays an important leadership role. And um, we were uh, very lucky because, as well as a lot of leading academics, there were also uh, some key practitioners, such as uh, the head of the Environment Agency from Britain uh, was with us. And um, on the business side, it, sometimes we find it's quite difficult to, to get key companies to come. You, you get academics, you get uh, government people, um, and you get journalists. But the hardest people uh, to, to bring as part of the dialogue are uh, business people who you know, often think they're too busy making money uh, to come. And we were very lucky that um, the, the Canadians particularly had mobilized uh, General Motors Canada. Um, so we had a very detailed and sometimes technical discussion on uh, road transport and some of, uh, and were given insights into new technology in, in that area. Um, equally, uh, we, we, we were very glad that some, we, we had some enlightened oil companies. Uh, it would have been very, very easy to expect the transition from um, the previous government in Alberta to the new NDP government to be one where um, you had business on one side in the dock and everyone else um, making the running, the hue and cry. Um, actually, one of the achievements of Rachel Notley from early on was to form a, a leadership forum, which included uh, a number of very enlightened business leaders, and some of them uh, from oil companies were with us for the discussions. They played an important role in the briefing on day one, uh, which lasted the whole day in the government, Alberta government buildings, and then they, they joined us and played an active part in our day and a half's discussions for the colloquium itself. Now, uh, a day and a half's not very long, and uh, we, we had uh, our structure of plenary sessions and breakout groups, uh, which tried to cover as much of the waterfront as possible, but it's worth saying what we didn't cover, um, but we, we flagged up that th these are also important parts of the equation, like uh, nuclear. Um, like uh, the agricultural sector, like some of the transport sector other than road transport. Um, so we, we didn't do much on maritime and aviation, though we, we did discuss it. And um, Aviation is one of the fastest growing areas of 
um, sort of noxious carbon emissions. So um, the, these, uh, in our report, the, the, these omissions are flagged uh, for future discussion. Um, now, um, the two previous speakers have made, I think, given a very good account of um, the main um, focus uh, in the colloquium and the, some of the policy recommendations. Uh, they haven't mentioned one thing that I think is important, which is um, as the Canada-UK Council, we're always seeking ways of um, not just comparing Canadian and British experience in the past and uh, looking at what we can learn from each other for the future. We're also specifically seeing where we can come together and um, collaborate uh, closely. And one of the things that I found uh, quite encouraging as a former banker was that there was a very large pot of money in Alberta that had been made available for uh, technological innovation. And um, so one of my first questions was, uh, and is this available for non-Albertans? non-Canadians, the British, and the answer was yes. So uh, one of the things in our report which is very important is to pass the message on that there are opportunities to be followed out by academics and um, scientists, technologists, uh, or, or, all kinds of disciplines. Um, we, we had a number, a number of mentions of the importance of new roles like the, the solar power installer. But in our report there was another important word um, it, it was installation and maintenance. Mm -hmm. So uh, for the low-carbon economy, w w one, one has to see it as a long-term process. Um, and just as you know, keeping solar panels clean is uh, sometimes quite a difficult job, the whole, keeping the whole system um, on, on track is extremely important. And we, during our discussions, uh, we tried to highlight um, particular responsibilities for moving towards a low-carbon economy. and um, So, of course, many uh, responsibilities fall on government. Uh, and I think uh, you've already got an idea from uh, the slides that, uh, that have been shown uh, and the comments made by Philip that uh, th th there's a very difficult role for government, uh, not just to move the transition forward, but uh, in cases where, for instance, the, the, the impact is regressive uh, to redistribute uh, monies that have been taken. So if money is taken by carbon tax, but if the impact is going to be har uh, hardest on um, indigenous peoples or uh, the poorest people in um, the, the, the province, then uh, extra efforts have got to be made in redistribution. Now, my experience as someone with a military background, to some extent in my family, is that uh, it's easy to talk about these things. It's much harder to implement. And uh, as someone who also has worked in national and local government in, as a politician, I, I know that the same is true. So there are, there are parts of the world where the inertia of government means all these things are just you know, dead letter. What is striking about um, the vigour of the uh, NDP government in Canada is they really are moving forward to grapple with these issues of disconnect uh, so that uh, theory hopefully is being moved into practice. Um, at national level, uh, we also had an interesting fact which um, if I get it wrong I can be corrected on by, by, um, by, by Lucien and Philip, but uh, I think that the, um, the, the Trudeau government 
also has, has set targets because um, there are leaders and laggards within the provinces and the territories and um, the, uh, the, the national government, federal government's making a major effort to bring the laggards up uh, so that um, by the figure I saw in the report, I'm not sure of, but it said 2018, uh, that everybody should be doing something. And Philip mentioned to you that, you know, that there are some provinces that go for uh, a cap and trade uh, system, uh, others a carbon tax, and others do nothing at all. So um, the 2018, if that is the right date, is pretty soon. And I, I think that it's, it's a major challenge. So there's some major political problems in, in Canada to get it all to happen. Um, there are also some major problems for Britain in, in that um, my, my view is that the budget crunch, which we may hear more of tomorrow, due to uh, the Brexit decision, um, means that uh, to some extent uh, there's been a backpedaling and a slowing down on the green agenda that, uh, that Cameron had. And uh, we, so Britain, ha having with, under Blair and under Cameron, set up a very, very uh, good framework, uh, is now not uh, necessarily taking all the steps that it should be in. Certainly, um, the, the fact that subsidies have been removed from uh, wind power or that the um, feed-in tariff has changed uh, for uh, personal energy generation, private energy generation, being fed into the general grid. All, all this is a step backwards, which takes us further away from meeting our two, uh, two degrees or 1.5 degree targets. Um, so I, I have one last point before we move into general discussion. I think that this, this really challenging issue of how you carry the people with you uh, so that you can carry the policies forward beyond a simple short electoral cycle is really very, very difficult. Um, we were in Canada uh, about two weeks after President Trump had been elected, so there was a sort of shadow, but also a large question mark as to whether he really meant some of the things he'd said. But um, on climate change and the environment, so far, unfortunately, it does look as though um, he means what he said. And that's going, so we, we see, we see a, a fascinating crossover between um, Canada and the USA uh, before the change of government in the two countries, uh, and, and now the more enlightened uh, and, I think, realistic long-term approach in Canada, and a very uncertain picture in America, which is bound to impact Canada as well. Now, um, a point that was made by a lot of people was that it's very difficult to convince populations uh, that their effort, their individual effort, is going to uh, ma ma make uh, an impact on a huge uh, canvas, on a huge scene. And um, I think uh, Canada's emissions alone are only 2% of the global total. So people say, well, you know, does that really matter? And, um, it's easier to uh, slide out of responsibilities. Um, for doing the right thing even in a small way. But I think one of the best arguments of all is self-interest, uh, if you can explain it to people. And the uh, fact that uh, one of the uh, aspects of, uh, of climate change uh, and noxious emissions is uh, air quality. 
uh, and that is coming home to people uh, in terms of the impact on uh, children, on the elderly, on everybody, uh, uh, all over the world, but particularly uh, it, it's true in certain uh, climatic conjunctions which affect Canada uh, and also uh, at times affect Britain. That is a political argument that means, uh, I think, there's a very, very powerful persuasive case uh, for taking measures like carbon taxes. But um, to some extent, we have to be prepared to change the language. So uh, clean air is a much easier concept to understand than low carbon. Uh, if you sort of wander around uh, looking for your man or woman in the street, uh, we've got to get the language right. And so that was also a point that was made, which I yeah. hope is going to be part of our recommendations. Very good. Thank you very much, Nicholas.